The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 12, verses 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at at a table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, uh, good morning to you. Uh, my name is Stacy Croft, if I haven't met you, and uh, glad you're here with us. If you're new with us, um, or if you've been here uh, a million times and would say you're a member, I'd love to get to know you. Um, and uh, would grab, love to grab coffee or lunch with you at any point and just get to know your story. And, help you fit further into the life of our church. Uh, You know, one of the things that we celebrate from time to time just as a staff is just getting together um, for lunch and hanging out lunch or a dinner. And it's kind of funny, we um, we were able to do it this week. There's actually six of us on staff, if you don't know, uh, but uh, three uh, full-time and three part-time. And uh, uh, at least five of us were able to gather this week. And uh, we had lunch at a table that was uh, a round table and we went to this place and we walk in and literally there's no one else in this is not an exaggeration no one in the place but us and we just laughed it up and we just enjoyed it and one of the things I, I really hoped we would do there and uh, hope we do more in the future I don't know about you but is when you kind of get all co-workers around the table you're like okay when are we going to start talking shop you know And I was really glad that we intentionally worked at, we are not going to use this lunch to talk about shop talk. We're just going to enjoy each other and hang out and make fun of each other, which we did quite a bit. And uh, and I, as the typical only child, tried to eat as much of the leftover food that people, you know, everybody's always so nice. And like, there's like several breadsticks and there's like, oh, there's one left. Like, I'm always going to be the guy who's like, no, 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 I'll, I'll take that breadstick. You don't need to bother. So um, that's a part of me. If you like to eat dinner with me, that's what you'll get. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I read an article recently. Uh, it was, came out in the fall uh, in the Wall Street Journal about how the linking of group meals, particularly family dinners or, or, or dinners with uh, with uh, people that, and friends uh, where you sit down is linked to the growth or uh, re- reduction of anxiety in younger generations. Really interesting article. And, and what they do is they begin to talk about how most of our meals, and especially since the last number of years, have begun to be on, on the road or on the go or by ourselves or work lunches or whatever we'd call them. 
And so the majority of our time is eating, maybe talking, but always going, never stopping. And so meals have begun to be associated with anxiety, and in some sense, the link to the growth of it. And what would it look like for us to sit and intentionally, and not, it's not just about some getting back to tradition, but why are meals so important? Why do you see them not just in passage like this one, but all through the Bible, meals are very, very important to the ministry, not only of the Lord from Old and New Testament, but of Jesus himself. So much of growth and work and life happens around that table. In fact, why we come to a table, and we'll talk about it here in a minute, is the fact that even the, the making of what was called a covenant of a relationship was actually by putting your legs under a table and breaking bread with people, it actually signified relationship. Even if you were working on it, even if there was breach of it, it signified relationship was happening. You know, we've been looking at the last couple of weeks at a series, uh, a topical series, which typically we, we take just every now and then to take time to do a topical series. And we've actually taken it from uh, a commercial that maybe you've seen called He Gets Us. Um, it's one, some of you have seen it, some of you haven't. Um, but it's moments from these commercials that are happening, particularly during major uh, TV primetime. And there's going to be one, I guess, during uh, the Super Bowl as well about Jesus and his humanity. And we're kind of taking the subject of those and preaching on them to bring more of a fuller idea of what is Jesus, how does he, quote, get us, and what does that mean? And one of those is about his table, his dinner table. How did Jesus dine with others? And like many passages we're gonna see in this one, the crucial ministry that Jesus has and even pinnacle of his mission, even at this particular table. Why is the table so important? And why do so many scenes in the New Testament Gospels take a moment to show these meals and for us to look in? So we're going to look at the, <clears throat> this topic under three headings. One, we're going to look at the table itself. What is the table uh, here, and particularly in this passage and, and who's around it. We're going to look at why trust Jesus. And then finally, we're going to look at coming to Jesus's table. So the table, trusting Jesus, and then coming to his table. And this meal in particular was a commemorative feast. This passage is a little different than just the other passages where people would dine, and it didn't really go into what they were dining for. This was considered the Passover feast. And thousands of pilgrims all over the country and even beyond were coming into Jerusalem to feast. And they would meet in homes like this one. And this feast had an order to it. Many were asking, you know, what, what is a Passover meal? The Passover meal was a commemorative meal celebrating God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and breaking the arm of Pharaoh who kept them under slavery. So in fact, even during this meal, different than some others, there would be an order of even worship and things that were discussed. But if you read in the New Testament this Passover meal, even not just in John's account, but you can see it in actually Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, this portion, Jesus kind of interacts and interrupts what is a typical movement through this Passover meal. And he will say certain things. 
And one of them is what we see here. The arrangement of the table, just so you know kind of what it looked like. Some of us have seen that painting uh, of the Last Supper. And, but it's a little different than what it looks like. It's not just some one long stretch table like this. It actually was a U formation where the most important person or figure was often given the, the, the end of the U. So the U was here and it would stretch out this way. And they would all be leaning on their left arm, usually on a couch with their head towards the table and their feet away. So if you can think about them leaning in this direction, moving around here and around here. And from the point of view of the person actually writing this, John, who calls himself the beloved disciple, not because he's arrogant and thinks he's the best, but because he so much knows his need for the Lord's love, is the one actually sitting right here, leaning this direction on the couch. So when it says that he leans back, he's literally leaning his head into Jesus' chest. Peter would have been right around that corner of that U, and Judas would have been sitting right here to Jesus' left. So everyone was sitting right here in this narrative account and then stretching further and beyond. Possibly Peter sitting here, and this would be the host's portion of the U, possibly at Peter's house for this meal. And the most important person being Jesus in that position knows that in this meal, this is not going to be like any other meal. We're not going to follow the order. And it says here profoundly, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Why say testified instead of saying? Because truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. As we know in the story, it would be Judas. Judas was one of those commissioned. Judas was one that not only followed Jesus for years, but was a part of the healings, saw the miracles of Jesus, sat even to his left, which would be considered actually the position of honor at the table, and handled all of the money for Jesus. He was intimately involved in Jesus' life and ministry, and yet he is at that table. There he is. You know, Rembrandt, when he painted this, actually, account, painted for Judas his face onto Judas, if you've ever seen it. It was actually one of his first paintings he ever did. Some asked, why did Rembrandt put his own face on the face of Judas? There's no real historical narrative other than what people have speculated. But some believe that why Rembrandt did it was so that he would always be reminded that he identifies with Judas. And look, it wasn't just Judas at that table. We know there are others around that table, Peter being included, that right after this narrative would be the one to say, I will never forsake you. What does Jesus tell him? Hey, you're going to deny me. Three times. Same table. Same night. Betrayal comes easy sometimes to us when it rubs up against what we care about most. Like Rembrandt, I think we need to internalize for a moment why. Why is this in us? Because our hearts easily, we would want to say, and many of us may have followed Jesus for a number of years, and 
coming into walls like this and, and worshiping and singing and having our hearts sing out and, and, and doing the standing and sitting and listening and coming to the table. And yet we know in the heart, our heart of hearts, that betrayal and turning aside can come easier when we're closer. When we feel like, oh yeah, I've done my religious duty. When we can act as though maybe we sit at the table and yet do we know Jesus? We can be around him, but are we in relationship with him? One of the things about this table and every table we see in the narrative accounts of the gospels that is so unnerving is that when you go to Jesus' table and you sit with him, you learn who you really are. That is the scary thing. Every time Jesus eats with someone or they invite them to his house, everyone around that table learns more about who they are in relationship to him. The table was a place where people came. And here's what's interesting about it. The table was a place also where people could watch. You know, it often says about the table in the narrative accounts of Jesus in, in the New Testament that the people that came to his, they were like, why, he dines. All the religious leaders like, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. You know why they say that and why that's such a big deal? It's because the table carried such social weight. Social status. And here's what's even weirder. Different than kind of what we're used to, you go to a home and people can't really see you. you. There was a window where you could actually walk by and see people dining. So when he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, the religious leaders could walk by and say, look, there he is, see him? One of my favorite things to do when I go home to Dallas, Texas, um, is, and I, I'm reminded of this because my, my wonderful son wore the best sweatshirt he could wear today with that beautiful blue star on it, the Dallas Cowboys. Perhaps you've heard of them. Um, grew up in the era when they were winning Super Bowls, and my favorite Dallas Cowboy, Troy Aikman, uh, lives still in Dallas, and one of the things, it's a tradition, and Megan will laugh at me for even telling you, I have to drive by his house every time we go to Dallas. And you know one reason why? And this, is, this tells you a lot about Troy Aikman. Without fail, every time we drive by, guess what he's doing? The window is right here. He's sitting at his desk studying film with this giant window because I think, and Megan always says it, he wants to be seen. And I'm there to see him. <laughs> and what a great relationship we have. But that's how it was. You went by the windows of all of the homes. If there was someone that was popular, celebrity, Jesus was in that category at this point, you went by and every time they saw him, what kind of status is he showing himself? Who's he eating with? Tax collectors and sinners. Even when he's brought into the homes of those who would have noble status, the discussion at the table was often about why do you think you have status? Is it because of this table? You know, it's interesting when Shakespeare, I don't know if you've enjoyed Shakespeare, but the famous line from Julius Caesar when he wrote, et tu Brute, that's quoted often. It means, and you Brutus. Now, if you haven't read Shakespeare, particularly J Julius Caesar, 
I really highly recommend his, his writings. But it is interesting to me that Shakespeare, in every one of his writings, now that's the most famous one, has a small window into the heart of betrayal. Most every one of them. It's something that he demonstrates over and over how deeply embedded in the impulse to betray is in the nature of human life. And these are the people normally, and in this even instance, et tu brute, was the closest one to Caesar. Because we know it's in our hearts. Jesus wants us to know the table here is being flipped. And here's what's interesting. Why it gets the religious people so stirred up. Because they can't believe that Jesus, who preaches this amazing gospel, this relationship to God, would be this close to the people that have the lowest status, not only status, but show wrong status in the culture and society. And yet this is who Jesus dines with. This is the good news of the gospel. (laughs) This is how the table in that society was. Jesus takes a mere meal and flips it on its head. So we know his ministry isn't about bringing in just the people that are gonna give him status or the people that are gonna do all the right things for him, but the people, even the closest ones to him, even the one who would be considered the rock. And on this rock I will build my church. Peter is the one who would deny him at that table, would deny him three times leaving that table. See, this is why we can trust him. See, the only one at the table that knows the mission, the only one at the table that if you read this passage, and even when it says, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that was laying right here, John, was reclining at the table inside, and I love this. Simon Peter was obviously sitting over here so he could see John's eyes and go, hey, Ask him who it is. That's literally what he does. Hey, ask him, because Peter didn't want to ask. And John leans back into Jesus' chest and says, who is it? The Greek, for when it said uncertain of whom it is, says that they were so troubled and turned upside down that the disciples themselves, who would all fall away, had no idea who it was. And when Peter motions, so the disciple leaning back says, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, "What what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said that to him. If there was one place that would be intimate for betrayal to happen, it wasn't just at a meal, it would be at the Passover meal. To go through this order of worship at this moment where Jesus is seated where he is, in other places, Mark, who won't even identify Judas or say his name, calls him just the betrayer. It says, is it I? The account of this is so profound because a few commentators even draw out that Jesus in this moment is showing insane kindness to the one he knows who will even betray him. 
If you notice here, it's kind of a weird thing because he hands him the morsel and then no one knows who's getting it. (laughs) Everybody's like, what's going on? And there's this confusion about who is it still. They even believe that when Judas leaves the table, it's simply for accounting reasons. They don't believe or understand or even know from what they've heard or seen, that he's any different from them. Because at the Passover meal, morsels were consistently dipped into the bowl. So for Jesus to hand him the morsel, it wasn't any different from others eating their morsels and them going, who is it? As Alexander Solzhenitsyn said wonderfully, and they, they, they can see this, that the line between separating good and evil runs right through the human heart. All of them are wondering. In many of the accounts, John's doesn't say this, but the other accounts say they all grew sorrowful. That all of them took this in. Every one of them. And John takes a moment to draw out Jesus, not only divinity, and you can see him in control. You can see him saying, go and do what you're supposed to do. We, we, we sit there, but what's powerful about this is he begins with Jesus' humanity. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. There are not many places where you can read of the emotional power of Jesus' troubled spirit where a Greek word talks about the tumultuous heart that Jesus has in the moment of being fully in control as he is fully God and yet he is fully man, receiving the betrayal and fear and sorrow of a table that's supposed to be worshipful and delightful. And yet this points to his mission that Psalm 41 9 says this. Listen to what Psalm 41, 9 says. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who, I, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It even brings in the name of Satan here to remind us that this isn't just Jesus doing a noble thing. This isn't like some fun end of a movie where where everything kind of works out, or, or, or there's a martyrdom. There's a cosmic level work going on here. I don't know what you thought. It's been a number of months now since the Will, as we know as the Will Smith slap at the, uh, what was it, a year ago? It was interesting, of course, everybody had their take on that and what happened and everything else. But I found it interesting that Denzel Washington said something after that. And he said it particularly to Will Smith, but it was captured. He said, at your highest moment, the devil will get you. Now, for a lot of people, they probably took that as a, I don't know, over-spiritualizing kind of thing. Maybe an emotional thing, the devils you have inside of you. But what, what I hear in there and what we know is true when John drops this in here of Satan entered into him. There's only another place where we see Satan in the New Testament. So the beginning when Jesus is confronted by him. And what we're to know is this is a real figure who is not of equal power or weight than Jesus, but is active and is in pursuit to thwart Jesus from his mission. From the beginning that Jesus starts his ministry, we see Satan enter the scene. 
And he comes up here and is named again, again to try and thwart Jesus, to take him. Because if Satan can take, derail Jesus, take him off of his mission, then he could succeed. And how better to do it than to, than to come into the table that is the most intimate place to try and take him from what? From us. See, Jesus' mission was to go to the cross. Jesus' mission was to take a table and have every friend around that table who ate bread with him to fall away. And the biggest part of this is for us to see that the mission of Jesus, as much as Judas would descend into darkness and eventually take his own life, Jesus was to descend into darkness in order to bring us into life. Everyone around that table, including Peter, who vehemently <laughs> said, no, 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 what are you thinking? So much so that Jesus looked at him at one point and said, get behind me, Satan, to one of his most trusted, loving disciples. Not because he was Satan, but because Peter had to know his mission is more than what they understand. And to go and rescue and save betrayers, he had to be the trusted one. There is a difference in everyone sitting at that table and believing in Jesus and believing Jesus. We can believe in Jesus, that he was a great teacher, that he was a great man. I mean, think of, think of all the levels of what Judas and even the other disciples were able to receive at the table dining with Jesus. They're positioning, we're with the guy. The power, they've actually been given power to do the work that Jesus had done, be it healings, miracles, all sorts of things. They had walked with him, they had been taught. And yet what Jesus is teaching them is it's not enough to just believe in me, but to believe me. Because this battle goes well beyond you. It is even with Satan himself. To believe Jesus means you believe him so much that it transforms your life. See, what gets to the heart of betrayers? Us. What actually transforms us? What gets to, to heart change? What makes you and I kept from not falling away? has to go beyond our affections. It can't be something that we can grasp onto ourselves or that we're powerful to do. It has to go beyond that. It has to begin with Jesus rearranging and coming into your life as the one who you don't just believe in as a great teacher, but you believe so much that there is no way his love for you can ever leave that not even darkness, death, and as we say in our creed, descended into hell. So that on the third day he rose again, that he could hold us. It, it, I, have to, I have to think about this even. Even Taylor Swift in her newest song draws it out. 
Isn't it always exhausting cheering for the anti-hero? It's me, I, I'm the problem, it's me. How easy is that to quote? And yet it is the truth. That who Jesus brings to his table for us to trust him. Look, just like everybody sitting at that table, Jesus might not be who you wish he would be in your life. Some of us wish he would just make our dreams come true. Some of us wish he would just make us successful. Some of us wish he would just make all the pain go away. Some of us wish and ask, why don't you just poof up here, show me. Jesus is not about the business of fulfilling the space just so you can think he's exactly who I want him to be. Jesus is who he is and the most stable one at this table, the only one where trust and belief is, and you know what the word betray means? It actually means bad faith. The only one that can give us faith that is true and right and real is in him. There's a great book called The Wounded Heart. <clears throat> it says this. <clears throat> most, most assume that trust is quiet, serene, selfless. Dependence on God. Genuine trust, though, involves another matter and has an impact in our lives. For that reason, many who hate and do battle with God trust him more deeply than those who com whose complacent faith permits an abstract and motionless stance before him. You hear that? Those who trust God must <clears throat> most are those who, whose faith permits them to risk wrestling with him over the deepest questions of life. Good hearts are captured in a divine wrestling match. Fearful, doubting hearts stay clear of the mat. The price of soul freedom is the loss of what has been deemed most secure. Tight grip over one's soul. The commitment to be one's sole provider or protector, but intuitively is known as no security at all that what real trust is, is those who are wrestling with it. Those who don't just try and get Jesus to be a supplement or believing in him, oh man, his teaching's great. It helps me out in certain places. But believe him so much that it is enough to turn over our entire lives. See, the table in trusting Jesus brings us to the table of Jesus. You know, if you notice in the passages following this, when Judas leaves, it is when what we know now and we're coming to in a minute, the Lord's Supper was actually instituted. That moving from this to the table, to a table, you can directly read about how Jesus does that. And what he would do at this table, and I mentioned this earlier, is he would interject in ways that in a normal order of worship that came with the Passover meal, and he began to say things like, this is my body, and this is my blood. And all of what these 
people knew sitting around this table of this normal order of worship began to change. Because they realized that this table is not the same table anymore. It's not one that you can just come to and eat at like any other table. This is now Jesus' table. That's why we say this. This is not my table. This is not Christ's pres table. This is Jesus' table. And I think that what's amazing that we proclaim every week and we may not pick up, but when I actually break the bread and pour the cup and we say, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, every single week, we have to proclaim the betrayal that is real. We proclaim what happened to our Savior, the betrayal, so that we can come as those who have hearts of betrayal or been betrayed because that's in us and have it transformed by one who never had a moment of that, who gave us, as the new covenant says, a new relationship with God. And I know I say that every week. I cannot emphasize that enough. No other table is set like this. Every other meal, you just kind of come and go. But this table, Jesus sets it with his own body and blood so that you know there is no amount of whatever you believe that you've messed up or you've betrayed or, man, how could I ever? Guess who came to this table? Just like us. To be transformed by the one who was the most trustworthy so that the only time he could say he was forsaken was when he was on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you might not be. Praise be to God for this table and what he has done by setting it, setting it right so that we know we are his forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.